there was, I remember a, like a few years back, I can't remember which bond it was, but like they made such a big deal about Heineken securing like, <laughs> like him ordering and drinking a Heineken. Just like, like when Fat Tire got the Bosch contract, you know, but that ran out after like two or three seasons. Yeah. switched to whiskey. That's yeah. good, yeah. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Well, I'll tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown him? Then crown your ass. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined here today with, as always, Eric Marsh and Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us selects a topic for the week and the other two hosts pick films in response to that topic. And this week, I decided to mix it up a little bit different than how we, you know, proceeding with our other episodes, and I thought I would narrow it down to a single filmmaker, and I was inspired by a recent, you know, featured bit of programming on the Criterion channel for a filmmaker whose work I was completely unfamiliar with, and that is the filmmaker Doris Wishman. So I asked the boys here today to sort of take me on a date with Doris to sort of hold my hand and guide me through as I came to learn and love the work of Doris Wishman. So why don't we um, just dive right in and we can start by talking about um, the films that you both brought from her filmography. So Marsh, tell us a little bit about what you picked. Well, I chose my film by title alone. Uh, I had not seen really any of her work before. And so when I saw the title... Bad Girls Go to Hell from 1965. I thought, well, obviously we need to watch that one, right? Uh, And I did, you know, uh, coincidentally learn that she often started with a title uh, before she even wrote the screenplay. So I think it's in the spirit, you know? This is a bad date. uh, To say the least. For you, for you, Ryan, yeah. Uh, and us, right? So this film is a sexploitation film from the middle 60s and one of the early films in her pivoting out of the more nudie cutie style of films like Nude on the Moon to the, the rougher stuff in the mid 60s. And then that's what this film is. Uh, it stars Gigi Darlene as Meg Kelton, a suburban housewife who is also in the film known as Ellen Green, and we'll get to that. But she is your your classic mid-60s housewife, and she has this husband who, uh, as the film opens, it's the weekend, and she's like, hubby, you know, why don't you stay in bed with me? Let's hang out. Uh, and he's like, I gotta go to work, you know? And he's this, <laughs> uh, this, this, you know, a great introduction to the men of, of Doris Wishman's filmography, who uh, are an an interesting, sordid group of individuals. But anyway, her husband has to go to work on this Saturday, and so she is just sort of like hanging out in their house, 
you know, sort of in the in the spirit of the film, kind of right, like scantily clad, you know, walking around their house, and she's starts cleaning up, and she's wearing, yeah, like a see-through, uh, sort of like nighty. Uh, negligee. And, yeah, negligee. And she then proceeds to take the garbage out, where she runs into the custodian of this building that they live in, and she is violently attacked and raped in the stairwell. This leads to a further encounter with the custodian in which she fights back uh, after he assaults her again and she kills him, striking him over the head with uh, an ashtray or a bowl of some kind. Uh, from there, she just pieces out, doesn't tell her husband, runs away to New York City, where she then, you know, encounters the Big Apple and uh, a bunch of other uh, dark, twisted turns. Yeah, I think she said to get lost in the crowd, and she certainly did. Quite a crowd she got lost into. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and yeah, so that's sort of the gist of, of Bad Girls Go to Hell, but I should remark uh, uh, more than anything, of course, I think on the style uh, of the film, which is full of life. It's this rambunctious kind of uh, handheld new wave style and feeling of a of, of thing where it's just like, it's really alive. And because she worked on threadbare budgets, it's also extremely fragmentary and shot entirely silent with post-dub sound. And all of this adds up to not your average sexploitation film, to say the least. Uh, and, and especially to uh, Wishman's perspective is, you know, different, I think, than, than other directors of this period working in the same market she did. So that's, of course, something we can talk about as well. And yeah, it's full of jazz and canned music and uh, just insane cutaways. Uh, and yeah, really, I can just only describe it as being like, energetic, rambunctious, like off the wall. And it also has a, a surreal dreamlike quality to it, which invokes a, a lot of filmmakers I can think about, but you know, Lynch, John Waters, obviously there's an explicit connection there, but uh, yeah, it's, it's wild. And that's, uh, that's that. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up the negligee. I sort of, after watching a couple of these, reflected that these are a cinema of negligees. That's how I would feel like I would describe the the work of, of Doris Wishman. And um, there are certainly some negligees that are popping at the seams in the uh, film that Andy decided to have us watch. And Andy, why don't you tell us a little bit about that film? Uh, yeah, you know, you're burying the lead here, Ryan, but, uh, I, uh, also had, had never, uh, oddly or sadly, I guess, uh, heard of Doris Wishman and her massive filmography before, no pun intended for the movie we're about to talk about, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, so when you tasked me with this, I really was just kind of like, I'm going in like totally sight unseen. And uh, so I just went onto the, the Criterion channel and and I, I just went solely by thumbnail uh, that, that spoke to me. <laughs> and of course, um, my eyes got very large when I saw the thumbnail featuring the, the late, great Chesty Morgan and uh, the film that she stars in, 1974's 
Deadly Weapons. Uh, the Deadly Weapons of the title are Chesty Morgan's rather impressive bust, uh, which it takes a while to get to. But uh, essentially, Deadly Weapons is the story of Crystal, who's played by the the sort of very, I guess, famous uh, burlesque dancer Chesty Morgan. And she plays also a housewife whose husband is in some sort of kind of organized crime, gang, mob, something like that. It's very vague. They're essentially just, you know, criminals of some kind, this criminal underworld. And her husband, uh, who's uh, attempting some sort of blackmail scheme against a, a sort of mafioso, uh, well, his scheme backfires, and he is taken out by a couple mafia hitmen. This sends Crystal onto a, a journey of revenge. She wants to seek out those responsible for murdering her husband and uh, bring them to justice in her own well-endowed way, I guess you could say. And of course, you know... The, the sort of shocking kind of uh, joke element here is that she she chooses as her as her murder weapon uh, her her big boobs so, so she's like uh, she's gonna kill people by smothering them with her her I mean gargantuan uh, breasts so. That's really kind of it. I mean, it's not <laughs> its not a very <laughs> intricately plotted film. Uh, it's its sort of a, a, a bit more of a, I would say, turn to genre as she had played with several times in her career. She, you know, dabbled in genre and sci-fi and in gangster films and crime pictures and a little bit of horror as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and this film is, is that. It's sort of... Uh, you know, it feels very much like an exploitation film from the 70s. But, uh, yeah, the the main character is just a, a woman with, with um, just huge knockers. I, I can't emphasize that enough. It was interesting seeing, you know, or at least doing a close reading on both of these films, because I did take a chance to look at some of the other ones that were available to sort of familiarize myself with her work and sort of some trends. And it was it was pretty fascinating, specifically these two watching them back to back films that are nearly 10 years apart and how naturally, of course, they have so much in common, both because of the sort of, I guess you could say, restrictions of the genre um, in terms of like what sort of content we're seeing on screen, but also the fact that her approach and um, her sensibility is so clear in both, and one is this, you know, jazzy, 4-3, black and white, extremely brightly lit, like low contrast um, film, Bad Girls Go to Hell, and then with... Deadly Weapons, we have a film that is in widescreen, you know, grainy, super vibrant uh, and colorful 16 millimeter film and seem to have a bit more of a budget too, at least, you know, relative to the rest of her filmography. Definitely relatively speaking here. Yeah, I think I read that the the budget for those were like $200,000 and she shot both films with Chesty Morgan simultaneously. Uh, 
and had a to- and had a really bad time like working with her as well, you know. She did not seem pleased at all throughout the film. She, at least, this is my perspective is to sort of just <laughs> as an outsider, my read. I was like, she seems just as a performer, she seemed a little disinterested, or at least not as much on the wavelength as say the lead performer in Bad Girls Go to Hell is, and she gives like a truly committed performance, as do many of the people, you know, with their limited acting. Um, credentials right i mean it's still exploitation cinema and this is like a different pool of performers that she's pulling from but yeah i mean the comparison between like how committed everyone is in bad girls go to hell versus chesty morgan specifically sort of somnamu uh you know what i'm saying it's just like sort of sleepwalking through her role (laughs) yeah (laughs) it is a very interesting element like of the film i mean it's it's built around her presence you know physically certainly but um, yeah, it's I, I'm definitely with you on that. Like, I will say, like, you know, not to not to do what we love to do here, which is get ahead of ourselves. But you know, I was I watched them both back to back as well, and I was I was I was actually very impressed, and I'm very excited to like discuss Bad Girls Go to Hell. But like, Deadly Weapons, um, you know. It, it it made me very uncomfortable at times, and I'm sure that that's probably part of what's going on here. But like, I really looked at Bad Girls Go to Hell, and like like you said, Marsh, like I did kind of feel this like new wave vibrancy, and to go from that to uh, Deadly Weapons, which really just felt like a grimy fucking exploitation freak show, mm-hmm. you know, built around somebody who who you know like you said, didn't really seem like they even wanted to be there aside from probably the check she got. Uh, so they are like a very interesting pairing, uh, in spite of like seeing obvious directorial flourishes that you have between the two. But, you know, they really were for me aside from her direction, like complete kind of, um, sort of departures from one another. I completely agree. I mean, I feel like within the genre, Bad Girls Go to Hell is as much of like a personal artistic statement as she was probably able to 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 do on screen. And there are a lot of things about deadly weapons that seem to be restrictive in that sense. And yeah, I mean, I walked away from Bad Girls Go to Hell thinking it was a pretty accomplished work. And that's certainly not what I would call deadly weapons by any by any stretch well but we might as well start with the earlier film right and i guess we could talk a little bit about you know what we know about the beginning of her career and how you know it was i so the earliest film i saw was was nude on the moon i took a look at that one and and that one she was working under a pseudonym and there's also sort of like a dual directing credit but then you know bad girls go to hell has her name very clearly stamped on the film and working under a male pseudonym was something she seemed to have done like for multiple times throughout her career. But there is something about like her putting her name directly on Bad Girls Go to Hell, sort of claiming it as hers. Although she used a pseudonym as a writer, uh, she wrote the mm-hmm. film and put like Don Whitman uh, in the credits. But it, but again, yeah, I, I guess like we should point out like she has an interesting background in that she came from like film distribution and, mm-hmm. and exhibition, right? So. 
she, you know, I guess she had studied acting and then sort of worked in, in distribution. And so she was sort of like reacting to these new trends in cinema in the late 50s and early 60s in the U.S. You know, this boundary pushing kind of like era with a lot of court cases and, uh, you know, Russ Meyer movies or whatever. But like she's specifically going for like this particular market. Um, and it's something that she could do basically completely on her own and she did she did everything in her films in fact she often made up names for the credits so it seemed like there was a crew when there really wasn't and she basically funded her own films she edited them with her own hands wrote them directed them and did that for all of them she never like worked for anyone else but herself. Soderbergh kind of taking a page out of <laughs> yeah. Doris Wishman's book. Yeah, I mean it's really amazing. And the catalyst for this, which I guess is kind of interesting, not to like you know uh, armchair uh, psychoanalyze or anything, but like her husband died in I think like 1960, and that's when she was like, ah, I need something to do, and she was like, Oh, why well, might as well make some like nud- nudie films, you know, uh, and. From there, you know, it sort of escalated. She did always sort of like reacting to what's going on and trying out these new genres or modes along the way. But I was thinking in relation to like both films have, you know, 10, 15 minutes in this like catalyst or traumatic moment that like send these women on their journeys. Uh, And it's basically what happened to her. Her husband dropped dead very young and she uh, decided to, you know, become a sleazy auteur. Mm And boy, did she. I mean, yeah, Bad Girls Go to Hell does, I mean, that's perfect, the way you described it, the the work of a sleazy auteur. Um, (laughs) Because I was, yeah, I was just so taken by it immediately. And, you know, I enjoyed enjoyed a lot of the other ones I watched, um, but sometimes I felt like I was, it was either distant or it was just, you know, the type of films that are designed for a different type of venue or audience right but bad girls go to hell like immediately we get this opening credits that's just like raw and pulpy i mean almost kind of like this like a punchy sam fuller type thing except here it's just a parade of abusers and cruel men you know and it's just like rough and we get these still images and we go through it and then immediately after that like after we get doris's directing credit and we get like our first shots of the movie we get this extremely like frank and intimate look at a married couple in bed and you know we talked a little bit about this beforehand uh, before we started recording it one of the things that pissed me off so much about the the new bond films that it just wasn't it just it just wasn't sexy in it like there was just it, it there was this like fear of sexuality that pervades so much of the film and i think that's something that like disney and marvel have done to contemporary cinema is just like draining it of any like libido at all and here you have even like in this first shot where there's not a ton of nudity initially, I mean, until she gets out of bed, but it's just you've just got like a, a couple, like a married couple in bed, just like splayed out, nude and comfortable. And it's like, I thought rather intimate, despite the fact that the husband is like a bit gruff and like work focused when he gets out of bed. But there's something that just felt so liberating about that, where it's like, OK, these just look like real people waking up in bed together. Yeah, and right right after that too, in their like morning routine, there is a a moment where they both get into the shower together. Yes. And and she has that sort of like, you know, kind of the like frosted glass. The frosted yeah. glass and, and you see them like start to embrace and 
you know, get a little funky in the shower together. And I was even like, man, this is like just she's just lingering on that frosted glass. And it, it really looked almost like, you know, like impressionist painting in motion, this mm-hmm. kind of. You know, these two lovers embracing behind that that frosted glass in the shower. And I, I also was like, man, this is like, it's just very nice. <laughs> like, it's very yeah, nice. there's like, I think because it isn't trying to conform to any sort of standards that would be seen in a commercial film, there's just a frankness involved with sexuality in general throughout all of her films. But then I felt I felt it most strongly here. It was specifically with what you're talking about. Just the casualness of a married couple waking up and like bathing together and like washing each other and just going through those domestic rituals and not making a show about the fact that they're nude, even if maybe the jazzy music is sort of trying to get you riled up at the fact that there is a nude woman walking around or why she's putting on a negligee, you know? And the husband does something that I would never do, uh, which is say no to the coffee that my wife made for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's he's funny because he's just like he's just like a uh, like a living Ken doll. Like he is just this like just handsome, like square jawed, like just just beefcake. And I was like I, the one thing I like laughed about because it's like he gets out of bed and his hair is just like perfectly quaffed. And he's like, <laughs> ah, honey, like, you know, she wants to like fool around a little bit more, I think. And he's kind of like, I got to shave. I got to go to the office. And I was like, I immediately laughed because his face is as as bare as a baby's ass. Like he, I was like, he needs to shave. And I was like, he just looks like perfect, like a Ken doll right out of a package. And he's like, honey, I look like a mess. Get off of me. I was just like cracking up at that. But I will say too, in that opening uh, sequence, I think I really started to, you know, almost immediately kind of get why she is a sort of revered talent and. Um, uh, transcends sort of the, the more, I guess, typical kind of like nudie, roughy sexploitation fare. Because even in that opening sequence from the get-go, there's also this kind of interesting deconstruction of bodies that she's yep. immediately doing. And I, I, I started to notice it in more of her work, even in Deadly Weapons, which is is just so much, it feels so much more rough than than uh, than bad girls go to hell, but you know, mm-hmm. it, it, I started to kind of think of like um, Godard and like Viva Saville in the way that she's taking the human form and and fracturing it. I think you used that yeah. word earlier. You know, it's it's a lot of like feet and hands. She's really yeah. interested in like pieces of bodies, either coiled together or alone, and how these pieces are kind of assemblages of of forms and figures, you know, and, and it can be read like multiple ways, you know, both from the, the standpoint of, you know, how we are objectified in pieces, but also like denying at times the, you know, I guess more like kind of, you know, money shot aspect of just like, here's a big old naked woman, but there's much more concern about uh, the parts of the body that I found very interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. and not to not to immediately go to a film that we're not talking about, but I, I also watched Indecent Desires, and there's a great sex scene in that film where there's, like, a phone ringing the whole time, and it's, like, the most obnoxious and distracting alleged sex scene. You know, it's, like, not even a sex scene. It's just, like, a nightmare. Uh, and I was just like, oh, this, yeah, she really does, you know, fracture everything. Like, everything's broken up. And, yeah, like, she also focuses, you know, to your point, not just on bodies but also like 
clocks and ashtrays and there's all this like trees are again like and there's all these like little snippets and again it's because she's shooting like with no money grabbing these Mm -hmm. like random shots of trees or birds or feet but added up to a whole i mean you know give it up to the way she constructs these films like both out of necessity but it's not just simply that no it's incredibly artful like what she does with this like cutaway style yeah it becomes a sort of like mosaic almost you know Mm -hmm. i think there's something too that's really interesting about the fact in that opening sequence where as you're talking about how she's fracturing the bodies at the same time, she's paying a great deal of attention to ritual and those like daily rituals of like preparing the house, cleaning sort of, you know, things that like a a wife at home might be doing. She does make very clear and that becomes like a motif even in her work is just sort of like those rituals being rejected by the men in their lives, right? You, Marsh, you mentioned that he didn't accept the coffee that she offered him. And there's other scenes even in this film of her sort of trying to express intimacy through the act of like cleaning or arranging or setting up the house and it being like brutally rejected by whichever man she's with at the time. Oh, yeah. Like with the whiskey later. Uh, But we'll talk about that. That whole whole bit was... So yeah, like once she goes through her morning routine as we wash her, yes, clean the ashtrays because there's so many fucking ashtrays in these movies. And she's getting ready. And yeah, like I mentioned, she goes to take the garbage out. And then the movie gets, uh, you know pretty uncomfortable as she's attacked in the stairwell and again to speak to like the 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 style of this movie like that's also when the the camera starts going like upside down and rotating mm-hmm. on axis that like you didn't know existed and like the way that the camera moves in this film and this is i think the first collaboration of hers with C Davis Smith who would go on to shoot like almost all of her work there's just uh this invention going on that is like they're pushing yeah they're pushing boundaries cuz it's like Right, they don't have to adhere to certain conventions like certain plot type stuff. It's like the conventions they have to conform to are like show naked women uh, Mm -hmm. and something like violent and exciting, (laughs) show things, you know? And that's like it. And so, you know, intentionally or not, the film is constantly veering into just like avant-garde territory because... It is so inventive. And in that scene, I was like, holy, holy shit, you know? Yeah, the attack in the stairwell, like, um, you know, I started to think that, like, the more I watched this film, like, it was kind of, um, I, I was able to sort of chart things that knowing, like, Doris Wishman was somebody who had, like, you know, worked in exhibition and distribution and was probably very, like, keenly aware of a lot of, like, cool shit that was out there in the world of cinema, especially in like places like New York uh, at that time that, you know, I could see things that, that she was clearly influenced by, but I could also see things where I felt like filmmakers who came after her may have seen some of her work, you know, and, 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 you know, whether or not, like even in my mind, like that whole um, scene in the stairwell, like made me think of, 
uh, Night of the Living Dead, like the way she filmed the attack of this woman being mauled, like it very much reminded me of the opening in the graveyard where, you know, that woman is being like sort of manhandled and mauled and the guy is like a, like a zombie. I mean, he's just like clawing at her, oh, clawing yeah. at her and the way the camera's moving, you know, in a similar way, Romero also being a, a, an independent filmmaker. And like you said, Marsh, you, you have to, you know, get very inventive when you have a single space maybe to shoot in and yeah, that's not a much real else. stairwell. That's not a set, you know? No. Yeah. That made me think about how she really does use those available spaces in such like evocative ways. Right. Because the initial apartment is like so tidy and clean and it's well kept, like well cared for, you know, and she draws a lot of attention to that fact. And then the stairwell is just, I mean, obviously the film's in black and white, but it's just like so gray and it's just like truly the type of stairwell that you would run into like a spooky janitor in of course you know and she (laughs) she really does like sort of get at the texture of like the gross stairs themselves like the way they're painted and just like the walls and the railings and everything she's trying it's very like all the cement you know um it's all those cutaways and all those like fractured images and the camera sort of going out of control she does do a really a good job evoking that sense of dread through the space itself even then when we go into the janitor's apartment which feels like this like you know it's i guess it's relatively clean but it's still like comparatively like a dingy claustrophobic space sad little hovel yeah it's much more like darkly lit you know when she's yeah she's sort of like bribed or extorted you know to see uh, this custodian again uh, and that's when she yeah she she gives it to him she brains him yeah he has an extremely haunting line in that sequence where he says, Since you came here to live, I've thought about you all the time. And I don't, there was some something about that emphasis on since you came here to live as opposed to just like, hey, once you moved in, I like, I've, I've just noticed yeah. you and I can't stop seeing you. But like drawing attention to the fact like you have come here to live and like <laughs> I can't get you out of my mind and I am now like taking control of your life because you're like in my space. It's, it's terrifying. Like it's a terrifying sequence and there were moments like throughout this film that it does like drift into like horror territory for oh, yeah. me and that mm-hmm. really was like from the get-go just i mean and it it's also a long sequence yeah. like the attack is long you know i was thinking of like this is one of the longest like sexual assault scenes i've seen since uh like irreversible and then again the second attack it's like both of those scenes like coming like back to back it just basically felt like just one 10 minute long ordeal Mm -hmm. uh and again broken up and fractured in a way that just like makes it extra we have our perspective is lost on space as well where we're also being thrown around and manhandled yeah Yeah, i think it's worth pointing out too right like i i do think everything we're saying is is like earned and i and i don't want to like undermine it at all but i do think it's worth like pointing out just the realities of the genre right like where i mentioned that you know she pays all this attention to ritual like part of that is also that she's just trying to fill the 65 minute runtime right yeah. like you know and the, the the fact that this assault sequence lasts so long it's like well she's got to fill the 65 minutes you know there's only a couple key events that happen in this thing so she's got to like embellish and make it go on but i agree i mean it's like yeah in a moment like that it's it's so suffocating and intense and it feels like it's never going to end yeah it's fucking horrible and uh it leaves meg very traumatized 
and she has like you know her her like Fassbinder shot in a mirror. There's a lot of those. That's another yeah. like recurring uh, thing that I saw in her work. And she just decides that no one is going to believe her, as she says in the voiceover that mm-hmm. intermittently uh, comes in and out throughout the film. But again, I think it you know it's, it's <laughs> watching this stuff. I can see why people have been fascinated by this film and, and her work is because it's like, it's just like beyond interpretation. There's like too much going on, you know, yeah. like there's too many ways you can like read this film because it's so fucking loaded. And it's like a pre-feminist film that's a feminist film. But again, like dealing, my point being, right, dealing with this situation, she's just like, no one is going to believe me. My husband is going to hate me for what has happened. And so she runs away. And, and like, just the way that sort of, like, the societal conventions, like, hit in, like, a movie like this, where you're like, Gee, what yeah. the fuck, you know? And also there is, like, a, a dream logic uh, to the movie in general that it may, is made explicit later. But, like, yeah, it, it just, like, hits really fucking hard. And... Then she like dresses up really cool, packs her suitcase, uh, and then you know we get an extended sequence of her traveling and looking really cool with sunglasses, yeah. being this like <laughs> fugitive on the run. Yeah, heading off to the Big Apple. I did love though; it was it was kind of funny, like uh, because she says, you know, what what'll I do? I'll I'll go to New York. I can get lost in the crowds there, and then it cut to like in her mind, I think picturing New York and the shots that she chose for that when she said I can get lost in the crowds were just like an empty park in New York City and I was like (laughs) you're gonna stand out there like that's where you're thinking of going like but like that but that's also where I think I really again started to um to connect to something that's been pointed out about her work that I discovered the more I started like dive in and read about her and read what others have thought, which is that, you know, she's been described as a, as an almost like Kuleshovian disciple in, in her, in her ability to sort of like um, connect images together. And, and at times images that, that's, uh, you know, seemingly shouldn't go together, but in, in doing so creating, like associations, like associated meaning behind those. Uh, and there's a lot of them that like when at first I sort of looked at it, I was kind of like, why is she cutting to that right now? And then I was like, oh, and then I would think about it and I would, I would find like meaning in it. And, mm-hmm. you know, whether that meaning is intentional or not, like, I mean, that's beside the point, you know, the brilliance of like the, the, that sort of like Kuleshovian or almost like, you know, Eisensteinian Soviet montage approach of like editing as associations again with her lack of a budget. She has to, I think in those cutaways or whatever you want to call them, um, cover so much more ground and, and time and space that and, and characterization as well that allows us to to find so much more like hidden depth in uh, in her work and in this film particularly because then it was like sh- it, it starts to kind of then cut back and forth between her then like getting up leaving Boston which it took me a while to figure out that they were from Boston she was from Boston but like right, me too. you know but she goes from the the small city of Boston to the big city of New York she's kind of like doing this like almost like cross-cutting which is like bringing her to New York and then some more establishing shots of like the city like oh she's in New York and then again it cuts to like that park that she was envisioning and 
she's suddenly there, you know? So it was almost this interesting kind of, you know, almost like elliptical editing of like, yes, how do I get this character from New York to Boston? I don't have a fucking lot of money. I'm not going to show a whole extended travel sequence. So she's just suddenly like there. She's like in New York now. And then she starts cutting to just a random pigeon walking around in the oh, park. Oh, yeah. And then suddenly I'm like, I'm like, this pigeon. Then I was like, oh, she's the pigeon. I was like, you know, like just this like solitary little thing like fluttering around alone. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I love that, like, New York montage that's just, like, feet. It's just, like, high heels and loafers on, like, a filthy New York sidewalk honking in the background, just, like, a whole bustle going on. And then that's intercut with, like, extreme low-angle skyscraper shots and then pigeons and then trees. And then it just starts doing, like, that for, like, five minutes of just, like... Feet, pigeons, skyline, the park, yeah. p- pigeons, the skyline, and you're just like, what the fuck? And jazz is playing. I mean, dude, it's like it's like beat poetry, you know. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say again, it's like when filler becomes high art, you know, yeah. really expanding the time and space. It kind of reminded me of the just the like guerrilla New York energy of like a Larry Cohen film too. Not to keep comparing her to other men filmmakers but you know larry cohen was Con- dude, confirmed mess. confirmed i read cohen and carpenter on the record inspired by <laughs> but it is funny right she goes to new york to get lost in the crowds and it seems like you know following this dream logic she can't help but constantly be found in the crowds and it almost feels like immediately every person she's encounter just like scoops her up and you know takes her with them Uh, into their own environment and then she's sort of at their mercy and that's when she meets that first man in Central Park who just like sees her and just asks you know like you want some kind of trouble? no you're sure you're not in some kind of trouble? no I'm not do you have any place to go? no no place do you have any money? No place to go and no money to go there with. That's pretty rough, kid. He's like, well, you're, you're coming with me. I'm taking you back with me. And it is just, it was an odd effect. The, the fact that it almost seemed every passing stranger could sense something of her as if she was, you know, people are on the watch for her, right? I mean, because she is on the run, you know? So it's like that element of people just being, like, attracted to this aura of her being on the run and then, like, kind of nabbing her and bringing her into their lives well you know these grizzly new yorkers they can spot a tourist a mile away so yeah yeah and i should say like she's got a very cool coat on uh and she looks like yeah like a a damsel in distress as is you know alluded to or said in the film Mm -hmm. about her she is again and that's what made me think of like Mulholland Drive or Inland Empire even more specifically is thinking of like when people asked Lynch what that movie was about he said uh, a woman in trouble and you go what does bad girls go to hell about and it's yeah it's about a woman in trouble and that's like the all pervading feeling of the movie is she's traumatized by her rape and and her murder, the murder of this guy, and she is in trouble, and everything is trouble, and she's like paranoid. The editing is jittery, she's sort of jittery, and then yeah, you get like 
this guy just coming up to her in the park uh, in this like extended scene. He like leaves and then looks back at her like six times and yeah. then comes back and, and, and takes her home. And that's uh, Al Baines, who is uh, the first uh, man or first person she encounters in New York. And he brings her home uh, and he's very... Uh, I guess nice at first, or at least he, you know, he gives her a place to stay. He's not trying to uh, have sex with her at right. this at this moment because it's like kind of a flip. Because we understand, I think more or less what's to be expected of this film, and our radar is up when this guy is mm-hmm. doing that little thing and he's looking at her, and it's sort of like he's casing her, and then it's like, "Hey, come with me" or whatever, and and your radar's up as is hers. But it's like a really interesting reversal because she like goes to like at a certain point, like touch him, you know, out of his kindness. And he's just like, don't touch me. Like, that's not what this is about. And he's very quickly like, hey, I'm not trying to to fuck you. Like, that's not what I'm looking for here. I'm trying to actually help you. And then, you know, that whole sequence to me was like oddly uh, affecting and intense. And the characterization of him that comes out of that whole sequence, like that slowly building, like they, Mm -hmm. they seem to like settle into like kind of almost like domestic bliss. Like she seems happy and comfortable there. He's not trying to fuck her and she's cooking for him. And he, he comes in and is all, you know, I'm going to miss your cooking when you eventually move on. That's just the best thing I've ever smelled and tasted. And she's very like happy about it. And then she's like, Hey, how about a little drink? You know? And then there's this just sudden like turn for him that, begins now like his transformation where you know he's very like very upset by the prospect of a drink you know i think at first she asks him like hey is there anything around the house couldn't find and he's just like you want a drink go to a bar i want to point out to you that one of the sort of like recurring qualities of of wishman's work that sort of comes out in this scene is that because it's you know shot without sound it's often characters listening to each other that we're looking at rather than talking because mm-hmm. you don't want to mismatch the dub that bad, right? Even though it's bad. But there's a lot of, it's like, again, like early 60s Godard where we're like looking at the wrong person in a conversation, but it's like being done on purpose. Uh, and it really does, yeah, it makes this relationship very interesting. And again, she's confounding expectations because first you think, yeah, well, he's just going to like do something really bad. And then you're surprised at how nice he is and then you're surprised that he has uh, a lot of skeletons and everything gets really dark and so she wants to have a drink one night she finds a bottle under the sink and she puts out two glasses uh and when he comes home he sees those glasses and she's just like you know hey let's have a drink together and he freaks out and he throws the glass against the wall one of them, and then he grabs the other and downs it. And then he grabs the bottle and starts chugging it until he is blind drunk. And then he takes off his belt and beats her to jazz. And it's, again, like... I, part of the intensity, I think, of her style is the use of POV and the use of unusual angles, right? And again, which are sort of necessitated uh, by all the violence that's going on in these movies. But it is just 
it's horrifying, right? Because you have this sort of like victim's POV of just being like whipped with this belt from a low angle because they're just like whipping it into the camera. Yes. And very suddenly and seemingly out of nowhere. I mean, it's it's like it's such a dramatic turn uh, for that initial sequence that I think that also adds to the violence because there's there's an incredible like emotional violence stirring inside this man as well where it's sort of I guess in that moment revealed like oh he's a he's a guy who's been struggling with his alcoholism and she unknowingly you know accidentally like sort of triggered this horrible relapse and then he Mm -hmm. just fucking like just loses steam and just fucking passes out and so then she and again like the emotional violence in all this she just like no words are then exchanged. She just gets her things together and it's like, okay, well, that's it. Now I have to leave. I'm going to leave. But she like forgives him. Like there's like, again, like this, this weird like depth in this moment where it's clear that she must also realize like he's a fucking alcoholic. This was bad. Like mm-hmm. I saw him as a kind man. You know, this was a terrible, terrible thing that happened. Cause she like, she like touches him tenderly and yeah, like, she kisses, she him. kisses him on the fucking forehead. And it's like, yeah. and that's when I really felt like, God damn, this is a, for someone who on the surface could be seen as like a very, you know, like just making all these nudies and goofy movies, you know, a, a sex movie on the moon or whatever. It's like, wow, this is a very mature filmmaker as well. Like embedded within this, this sexploitation genre. Yeah. It's just like this really, focused and clear idea of the agonies of intimacy and the way that intimacy can be seen as repellent by some people because of the shit that's going on in their lives like specifically this guy al who is you know rejecting all these like nice gestures that she has set up because she thinks it's like an intimate and like pleasant thing to do um but it's waking up all these like terrors that he's got within him and i guess there's just something so profound then about her acknowledging that as the victim in this man's world the fact that she can see that you know the specific the ellen the the protagonist can see that in him even with all this like surreal terror and that she's like trapped in the cycle that kind of just keeps going on for the rest of the film the fact that even within a like a roughie from the from the mid sixties. Like we have a protagonist that is that perceptive. I think speaks very much to what you know the perceptive quality of Doris's work in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautifully put. And then she heads out back into the big city, and she uh, ends up looking in a you know a store window and randomly encounters a very tall woman with black hair and a leather jacket. And this is Tracy. And Tracy, once again, as, you know, she's trying to hide in this big city, this woman just is magnetized to her and says, you know, my cousin Della's looking for a roommate. And that's when she says the line. As they say in the movies, anything to help a damsel in distress. Yes. And again, it, that sort of adds to the this sort of hallucinatory, surreal quality of, of this film. Yeah, because I mean, she's, she's just picked up right away, right again. You know, it's the first seemingly the first person she sees because time as we've talked about because of the way this film is cut is confusing and it's hard to tell like how long she's been out on the street i mean the way that the film moves for all we know she could have walked out of his apartment
apartment, stopped at the first window she saw, and then the first human being that saw her just was like, ah, come back and live with, with me or someone I know. You know, it just happens so fast. You know, too, Marsh, even when you sort of point that out and the specific usage of like damsel in distress and the, the, the dream logic that starts to develop, I mean, it does in that sense then almost take on the form of like some sort of like twisted bebop fairy tale where she's like little red riding hood walking through the wilderness yeah. beset upon by all sorts of big bad wolves mm-hmm. uh, you know <laughs> like and that's it she just is trying to like move on her way to get to grandma's house or wherever and and so many things just came like popping up around the corner every bend and every twist you know but yeah so she does go to this apartment and i mean just this chunk of the film is just so incredible i mean the because then you know again as we've talked about before we're all fans of the hangout film and at this point she's just living with another woman and they're just hanging out and they're having a good time they're doing their scantily clad acrobatics for each other to show like what they're able to do um and <laughs> yeah they... i love that she's like she's like i'm a very acrobatic dancer and then she just like goes over to the wall and does a handstand <laughs> <All right. laughs> acrobatic dancer huh? I want to point out too she's not just living with any woman she's living with Della who is the same actress as Tracy but with a blonde wig uh, so the woman that picks her up on the street and the woman that she's taken to and ultimately lives with same actress oh my god really yes oh jesus i didn't even notice that i didn't either that's pretty incredible yeah it's amazing (laughs) so there's again there's doppelgangers in this sequence one who introduces her to the other so that's why it felt so fucking weird to me they're not in the same shot yeah, and also that their hair looks insane. Like one of them, if not both, are clearly crazy. They're both wigs, yes. yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, yeah. And Della, I mean, we should probably at least like give somebody a, a mental image of how we're introduced to Della as well because <laughs> it's pretty intense. She's just like laying on the couch in, in a see-through leotard. Yeah, and that leads to, you know, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, which I I noted uh, in my notes as, you know, this is the kind of film where a woman in a see-through leotard opens a beer and drinks it in real time while a surf rock song plays. (laughs) Yep. God, just digressions like that that are just totally fucking meaningless Um, are, of course, part, you know, some of the best parts of this film when, yeah, all of a sudden they have this kind of like, what ultimately turns into a a sort of lesbian uh, affair. Uh, But yeah, they're just like hanging out, like wearing nothing uh, in this like cinematic, you know, wish fulfillment, you know, odd couple situation. And there's such a great happy accident in that scene where you can see Joris herself reflected in the windows. I don't know if you guys caught that, but that was kind of nice. I thought, you know, I'm sure it wasn't intentional, obviously. It was just sort of like a distant reflection, but there was something about Doris's presence being literally seen on screen as there is this like sort of brief utopia, this like night. She's finally having a nice time. Yeah. But too nice of a time, ultimately. Too nice and of a certainly time. for America in the, you know, 1965. Right? That's right. Uh, Meg slash Ellen uh, is not 
uh, going to stick around for that lesbian utopia, unfortunately. As once again, the film loops, you know, all over again, right? She she packs her bags. and But man, the goodbye. Uh, oh, yeah. So, it's so sad. It is so sad. I mean, it's it's sort of implied that they have sex, right? They, mm-hmm. they, right. they don't show it, but it's implied that they... They sleep together, and then the next morning she's just packing her bag. After that, it's like, like I gotta go. And Della's like, "Why are you leaving? You know that I love you. I know, I love you too. Then that's why I must go." And I'm like, it's like heartbreaking because it's like this forbidden love, you know, the lesbian love of that moment, you know, and that it's like it's too taboo for her or just, you know, also in the sense that she's, you know, I, I read it again, this 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 depth of the unspoken in this film of of her kind of being like, I am a fugitive and this could end very badly for me and I don't want to drag this kind woman down with me yeah. and certainly to have her perhaps exposed by fucking shitty New York detectives or whoever. Yeah. Cause it, in this, in the Della sequence, it's introduced, she brings a newspaper home uh, and puts it on the table and it says, you know, police seek blonde suspect in Boston murder case. Ooh. Right. And obviously that makes uh, Ellen just even more sort of, you know, full of fear and paranoia. The net is tightening. Yeah. And she doesn't want to involve Della. I mean, no. it's a, again, like it's so much emotional depth and in like very few words and very little dialogue. Yeah. It's so tragic because there is like this implication that she is just kind of doomed, you know, and that she knows it, that she's sort of like, okay, here is something that's nice. Here's someone that's embracing my intimacy and that, you know, we're, we're communicating with each other, but, it is in the sense like it's stuck in this dream hell loop of just like I'm doomed to keep pushing forward and like enduring this uh, is just like, yeah, it's extremely haunting. You know, you know, another recurring element of, of Doris Wishman's movies is the sudden ringing of doorbells because you're missing like the shots or scenes in between uh, when people are like maybe going someplace or whatever. Uh, so yeah, all of a sudden it's like, you know, she's she's out of this living situation. She puts her sunglasses on and then it just wipes to her buzzing a doorbell and being like, I'd like to rent the room. And you're like, oh, hell yeah, let's go. And, I'll, and she's brought into this apartment with this married couple and immediately the radar is going off because the husband is sitting there and he just sort of like he has this generic look to him that kind of blends with a lot of the other just like all the men in this film kind of in my mind even only the fact that i watched this film yesterday have sort of blurred into a single face of just like terror I love that moment, too, because the wife has an extremely, like, annoying voice. And, uh, you know, Meg slash Ellen's lie that she's been telling people in New York is like, oh, I'm from Chicago. Uh Whether that's true or not, we don't actually know. But that's sort of like, I'm Ellen. I'm from Chicago. And the annoying wife is like, I know some friends in Chicago. 
They live on Elm Street. You know where that is, huh? <laughs> yeah. You know him? Jesus. And it's so it's so bizarre. And you just start to get that sinking feeling. And we get like another one of these moments where yeah. Meg is like just starts breaking down with her hands and her face crying, just again, trapped in this in this never-ending looping nightmare. Uh, situation, and then of course the husband's predatory looks uh, come to fruition. It is implied, of course, that he rapes her, but the film cuts away before then to the following morning, where she once again packs her bags in this recurring image uh, on the road again, <laughs> and is on the road again. I mean, it's like it just won't stop repeating. Then that is when there's that extremely odd moment where after sort of leaving this hellish environment she then opens up a newspaper and reads the wanted ad for a companion wanted for a semi-invalid and she says that's just what I want Uh (laughs) or maybe that's just what I want and it's funny that it's not that's just what I need again there's like the specificity with the language in this film that's like pretty compelling is this what I want and then there's like this curious thing where it's like so she's on the run you'd think she would say like oh this is what I need like I won't be attacked by this person I'll be able to hide out but instead she says this is what I want as if this whole time this has been a quest for what she wants which is just it it was just something that I was that I appreciated it was just a way of sort of pulling the rug out from under me being like okay wait what is actually going on here like what is her quest and it's and it's true and it is established in like every single one of these terrible situations she finds herself in that she is like ultimately like a caregiver like in every scenario she's like She's cooking dinner, she's cleaning up, she's she's taking care of people. Like so so it is for uh, what has been established like very true to form for her. But then things go sour again and this woman who she's now the caretaker for, her son comes back. And this son just so happens to be a detective who is on a hot new case. <laughs> Out of Boston. <laughs> yeah, I should also point out just before the the son the the the, the son cop shows up, there is uh, what was just for me a hilarious moment of her playing the piano, yes. and it is the absolute worst like fake piano playing I think I've ever seen in a movie like I was just laughing I couldn't help it like there's also a scene where she goes to the drugstore uh first of all the pills are only two dollars I want that uh and second of all Doris never lets anyone off the hook because even as she goes to the drugstore there's shots of this man lurking outside and it's like implied through the sort of jagged cutting that he is maybe following her as she leaves the drugstore and ultimately it leads to nothing but it ultimately yeah then pivots to being about uh, Mrs. Thornton's son the detective who's working on her case who's coming home and in this just total like dream movie logic like of all the places I had to get work the oh, the son is working on my murder case right she can't uh, catch a fucking break she can't <laughs> she really can't and that's yeah when when uh, it all 
falls apart. The end of the road for Meg Ellen or whatever the hell she's calling herself. <laughs> because this this uh, this just awful New York City de- detective rolls in and just immediately starts to put all the pieces together. He finally got the big break in his case. She's just at his mom's house. <laughs> the suspect he's been just tearing up the streets of New York and Boston for. And it, it's awesome. He just keeps repeating, like, I've seen you someplace, as the shots just get, like, lower and lower angle of this detective. Yeah. And then all of the sudden, he's just holding a key. And he's like holding this key out, being like, I've seen you somewhere before. And ultimately, yeah, he's like, you're Meg. You're busted. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, you're busted. Uh, And that's also when we learned the the custodian's name was Amos Wright. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, and she starts to like freak out being like, you know, I didn't, I didn't mean to do it. And it's like the, the lens is all out of focus. Everything's blurry. Everything's freaking out. You killed Amos Wright. I didn't mean to do it. And then of course it was all a dream as she wakes up in bed. Turns out that after her husband had left, She passed out in the bed. And everything that just happened, she was dreaming. Uh, Some might call that cheap. (laughs) (laughs) But is it? But is it? Because she wakes up because her husband has come home to get a document for his for his business meeting. Right. Uh, And she tells him she she had. She had this horrible dream, and he's very much like, "Hey, don't worry about it. It's just, it's just a dream." Yeah, relax, honey. But yeah, then it is revealed. You know, you might think it's just a cheap, uh, a cheap like way to get out of this thing. Oh, it was all just a dream. But it actually turns out it wasn't a dream. That really, Meg slash Ellen is a precog because. She goes out then to take the garbage out, and the film ends on that horrible sexual assault that takes place with the janitor. I mean, it just like launches right into it, and everything that all over again. was a dream was actually a precognitive dreamscape vision she had. So now it's all going to start actually from here, unless it's a dream within a dream. Ah, yes, yes. The living dream becomes a waking nightmare. Oh, my goodness. But, yeah, it repeats the same sort of, like, routine ritual that we talked about earlier in terms of, like, her cleaning up and her uh, sort of tidying. And I, it, I kind of assumed it was, like, literally the same shots, although I, I can't confirm that. The assault was. Yes. The, the Going into the, the stairwell, like, that was identical. Yeah. Like, exactly the same. For sure. So, again, it's got this, like, never-ending loop just when you think it's a, ch- a cheap out for the film's like insanity to be a dream, it reverses again, and, and expectations are totally confounded. Now it's entered like sci-fi territory. <laughs> it's like a Twilight Zone. You know? But I was thinking too, more on the humorous side, that ultimately, you know what this is? Is like the husband should have just had sex with her. Because instead, she went to bed really horny, and her dream was really fucked up and horny in that totally illogical sort of dream way, but ultimately, yeah, like, that's what I took away from it. Like, don't go to sleep that horny. Yeah. 
the husband, yeah, he's the one that really is to blame here. Ted. You know? Yeah, Ted. Yeah. You know what also is interesting about that? Because you were talking earlier, Marsh, about, you know, almost the, the sort of um, autobiographical um, sort of like through line in her films of, you know, experiencing this like this this loss and this trauma and then being propelled into uh, a mission, a journey. Her husband is an ad executive in this film and her husband in real life was also an ad executive. Uh, I, I discovered that when I was like just reading more about her. And also that connects with an, an aspect of character in our second film in Deadly Weapons where the, the central character, the woman, Crystal, <laughs> is an ad executive, like that's her job. But it, it, it did also then, you know, strike me that, you know, we were talking about the Kuleshov aspect of, you know, her work and these, these sort of associations. And I was thinking like, you know, how as well for her being married to a guy that worked in the advertising world, uh, there's probably some communication that had gone on between the two of them about, you know, how that stuff works. I mean, the ad agencies, the advertising in industry is is like more or less just entirely built off of the ideas of like the Soviets and Kuleshov in creating associations and, and desires in our minds and, you know, building mental images for us out of, you know, a, a caring mother and a box of fucking macaroni and cheese or whatever, <laughs> right? But like you see so much of that in her work. And so it is this like, this interesting thing for me that did pop up of like, advertising and and again also in the the emphasis on surfaces and images like the ad world you know the the world of marketing and and you know perfect pictures of pretty things and and you know objects and surfaces and all that stuff so uh again a, another sort of galaxy brain kind of connection that i experienced suddenly being like oh my god you know her her madman husband must have explained to her like Here's how we, here's how we, you know, put thoughts in people's minds. You know? Sure. And let alone what she learned, you know, in film distribution, seeing, you know, the masters like Sam Arkoff at work, Absolutely. you know, right? Like, uh, I mean, it's, you know, that whole era of those sort of like, you know, smut empresarios, you know, they really, they had to sell this shit, you know, like... Posters, <laughs> titles, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, it's all part of it. It is such like a marketing forward kind of subgenre, like it has to be to survive. It's funny how the beginning of both of these films do address like the working world of the men in the lives of their woman protagonists. And then also it's funny the the like the mirrors and the differences, you know, with the the impulses of both of these films where you have the tender, loving bathing sequence between the husband and wife in Bad Girls Go to Hell. And then the bath scene in Deadly Weapons seems to simply exist to ask the question, will they float? (laughs) (laughs) Got them. Yeah. My favorite element of Deadly Weapons was definitely the like collection of wise guys in it. The very much just like the generic like, hey, Tony, hey, hey. Like it all like predates the Sopranos and it's like just like generic mafioso group. But it also then predates the Sopranos with these like introspective gangsters. Like I love the sequence where the guy is just like walking amongst the trees with his hands in his pocket, Mm -hmm. just kind of pacing back and forth. And he's just, why does boss deserve all the gravy? (laughs) Why should the boss get all the gravy? 
He sits on his ass and gives orders. I take all the risks. That old bastard deserves a good screwing, and I'm the guy that's gonna give it to him. They think Nick has it, so I'm clean. That stuff is so funny. That's Larry, her husband, who goes to get a hair. Yeah, he goes to get a haircut, and then he's musing in voiceover why he doesn't get a share. Yeah. Um. And yeah, like the opening of the film, you know, is actually not with Chesty Morgan, but with the mobsters. Yeah. As they beat the shit out of this guy and shake him down for the little black book. And oh my God, is it a brutal fucking beating? It's in a similar way. Like maybe Ryan, you're right. It's about eating up time but like they beat this guy forever and he is like the actor is like whimpering in a way that like just made me incredibly uncomfortable like it was in in my mind it's one of the worst beatings i've ever seen delivered in any movie simply because of like the how grimy the 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 image was and also like the vocal quality of this guy yeah. that's just like simpering as he's being like worked over. Like, I can't even describe it. Uh, it's rough. Yeah. And another connection to Godard is, of course, the uh, paint style blood in both films, in black and white and color. Yeah. The blood looked fake in a good textural yeah. way like you yeah. know Godard it's not blood, it's red. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, I felt that throughout. Uh, as there's a couple, yeah, like bloody gags. I have to say, on on a personal level too, like I actually had a had an issue uh, where I kind of had to like stop the movie for a second because I kind of screwed up in that I was like, uh, you know, being the second film for me, I was like, all right, I, I got to eat something as well. So I made myself a little dinner and I sat down to start the film with my dinner and just immediately like started to feel nauseated because like <laughs> like her just massive like they really like they launch right off the bat they kind of like show you in the credit sequence like chesty morgan's uh just breasts and they are just so big and veiny and the something about the quality of the film stock and that in the remastering like there's just so much more detail of her breasts yeah and i it honestly, feels like body horror it really was and i got like sick and i had to like pause things and be like i cannot eat and watch this at the same time. Like, I, I have to sort of, like, do one or the other. And I think there's something, a key difference between the visual approaches of the two films where I wouldn't qualify Bad Girls Go to Hell as, like, erotic imagery, but I do think that there is, like, a sensationalist freak show element of Deadly Weapons that is, like, most definitely absent from bad girls go to hell or just any of the other ones i watched yeah this 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 feels like when you hear the phrase sexploitation like this one like feel yeah. to me more of like you know the the pinpoint idea we have of like a sexploitation film well look she's just doing high concept you know before yeah. hollywood <laughs> got a hold of it essentially right very true um, <laughs> and yeah you know and and like i love i personally thought it was awesome because like also the key difference between these movies is jazz versus rock yes and this is a rock movie and it's a color movie and we all know that low budget movies in color look 
way worse than low budget movies in black and white. Oh yeah. Uh, and yeah. so this 1974 people, this is one of the most disgusting years in the history of, <laughs> you know, aesthetics. Yeah. Right. And like, we see it in the film, like the wallpapers, the couches, the scuzzy clothes, like, Everything is just 1974, and yeah. we all know that's like the taking of Pelham vibe. Oh, you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, there were times like, where I really, there were times where I really felt like I could smell this movie, like dude, without a doubt. This, I could smell the cigarettes on those guys' fucking skin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could, yeah. I could smell the theaters that the film would play in for sure. <laughs> just like stale semen and just like a real dirty, unkempt space. I'm glad you brought up the wallpaper too, Marsh. I did really, talking about the way she uses the available spaces, that really funny shot of um, Larry with his like floral button-up shirt with like a very, you know, intense floral wallpaper uh, behind him that looked like something out of like a crazy Sears ad or something from the 70s. Yeah, dude, that shit was making me queasy as fuck. Like, it was so busy <laughs> Yeah, it's at like times. a pale yellow. Yeah, there's just so much going on yeah, in those shots. The, the, a lot of the performers, too, in uh, Bad Girls Go to Hell, like particularly like the women were all, you know, I thought very... Um, if I'm speaking very on a shallow level, I found them all very like attractive, you know, uh, most of them anyway, were very attractive when everyone in this movie is like gross. <laughs> like, there's no sexy people in this as much as it's trying for like a sort of, you know, like kind of erotica where we're getting her in like the soapy, yeah, I guess will it float scene you're talking about where she's just like showing off her her cans in the in the bathtub, but I was just like this is disgusting. Like these are, these people are all a bunch of fucking like malformed, misshapen, middle-aged. <laughs> like everyone seemed like they were like 45 too in well, it, the, you know? yeah. I love the recurring uh refrain from the mobsters that said early on by Larry and repeated later by Tony. Not bad for a guy pushing 40, huh? Not bad for a guy pushing 40. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I thought, yeah, like, I'm... I'm kind of, I'm kind of pushing. We're kind of pushing anyway. Yeah, but but that's like that's like again like forty in nineteen seventy forty in nineteen seventy four is like seventy today. Yeah, hundred percent. That that's totally. what these guys look. They look old, and I was like, they're supposed to. Oh, yeah. We're talking about like the crazy like deformed faces in this movie. What the hell was going on with her dad's face? Oh. <laughs> I couldn't tell if there was some sort of grafted prosthetic to like make him look more wrinkled or it was just the fact that there was like so much makeup that it heightened all of the wrinkles on his face like maybe this film was never meant to look this clean and it was only expected to be shown on an extremely battered 16 millimeter print out of focus but well you know dear god she lived in coral gables florida so to me it's just kind of like these guys all have like florida vibes i don't know if that's true (laughs) but i I felt that yeah they just like caked on this like very ashen kind of like makeup and uh i think sprayed his hair quite a bit because the tone the color of his hair seemed to change too throughout depending on how much gray they they sprayed into it for that for that scene yeah yeah so like basically this film has a similar structure to bad girls go to hell in that you know the classic 10 to 15 minutes in there's a traumatic event and in this case it's because her husband larry the mobster has stolen the little black book for his own keeping and lied 
to the mob boss who we don't see the face of, just his scarred hand. Yes, again, uh, the hands, you know. Oh, yeah. And uh, he lies to everyone as he seeks to use the little black book for his own personal gain and sort of, like, get out of the mob game and and go away uh, with Crystal, his wife, the ad executive. Yeah. <laughs> there was, to that really hilarious moment where he's sort of, like, pitching that to her. And it's just, like, the script. Oh, my God. He just, like, he says to her, like, he's like, You're a successful advertising executive. Beautiful. Loads of dough. I'm nothing but trouble, baby. Nothing but trouble. <laughs> and he's just, like, he's, like, singing her praises and all this stuff. But, like, that's really all we get of it, you know, in terms of, like, her being this, like, successful, smart businesswoman. It's just this, like, really weird, awkward line that establishes yeah. that. I think there's, like, one shot in the film of her, like, looking at a proof at, at a desk <laughs> early on. Uh, but they quickly pivot away from the ad world. Yeah. And as you said then, you know, Larry's, uh, Larry's scheme goes bad. And uh, he is himself, like, uh, uh, murdered pretty brutally by Harry Reams. And uh, a guy that is referred to as Captain Hook. But not, as you would expect, because he has one hand, but because he has one eye. Yep. (laughs) So, (laughs) Captain Hook, who is a man wearing an eye patch, uh, and Harry Reams, uh, dispatch her husband... And she picks up on a few details because the murder takes place while she was on the phone with Larry. They were having a phone call. So she catches the conversation following the murder between the two hitmen, these these mob assassins. Uh, And she just gets a few sort of details and then is going to now use that, that little information that she has, that that one of them likes burlesque or something like that. Isn't that what she picks up oh, on? Yeah. That the guy's like, like Vegas. Yeah, know. yeah. Like, hey, you know, you know, they're like t- talking after the murder. It's like, hey, you know, that was pretty <laughs> easy. Uh, well, enjoy your vacation in Vegas. Don't uh, don't enjoy too much burlesque, you know. Yeah, he's like, stay away <laughs> from the burlesque girls. Yeah, that's, <laughs> right. the, that's what he warns him. Yeah, so she she cooks up a harebrained scheme then to go undercover to infiltrate the world of burlesque in Vegas and uh, see if she can locate Captain Hook. You know, as you're describing it now, maybe this all is this all is finally aligning for me in my head in the sense that she looks at least the way I read those sequences, those burlesque sequences, like she does look a bit queasy as she's performing. She's like staring off into the into the ceiling. She's kind of uncomfortable by the audience and not really engaging with them in any like performative way. And in my head, I was confused at first because I thought like, oh, isn't Chesty Morgan like this famous burlesque performer? You think she would be this remarkable showwoman and like it would be that this, this isn't the scene designed as a showcase for that. But as you're describing it, Maybe she just like her character really hated that she had to stoop to this level in order to like track down the people that have killed her husband. And she's just suffering Mm. through this demeaning burlesque experience as she interprets it, not to say that the act of burlesque is demeaning, but that, you know, she is uncomfortable in a situation she doesn't want to be in, but she's doing it to avenge her her husband's death. (laughs) There is a lot of voiceover about how like worried she is about this sort of like fantasy that she's enacting to get close to the 
these guys and she has mm-hmm. like reservations and confusions about it so uh i do think that's yeah that's like a that's a solid read uh <laughs> i do i do also want to point out one sequence before she goes to vegas after her husband is dead and she just like looks forlornly out of a window oh, uh, yeah. and at trees and this like ring on her finger and the, the film goes into like smudged lens flashback mode which is just like this amazing sequence oh, where yeah. uh, she's like sitting out by the pool and Larry comes in with like this huge ass ring yeah in his like white uh, bikini briefs you know this like very hairy <laughs> middle aged man in this this sequence that's supposed to establish their passionate love affair their their undying love for one another and 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 I just like in that whole sequence just kept thinking of like how they came off as like just like your 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 uncle and aunt at the pool party that make you uncomfortable, you know, and have too much PDA, and you're kind of like, God, get a room, you know, like Aunt Kathy's going like ham yeah. over there, like. Ugh. There's a dissolve of like breasts and ripples in the water, and it like cuts back to her, and of course, because this is deadly weapons after all, she sheds a tear that falls onto her big jugs and i will say the tears i was again laughing because it was very clear you know like you said splashed her not a not a not a you know a seasoned thespian chesty morgan so it's clear that they had to give her like the old glycerin teardrops but it looked like fucking melting wax running down her cheek like it was so thick it was like ooze and yes it like splatters (laughs) under her size 73 bust you know like oh my god but at the same time, right, it's like it's still this like engrossing watch because, you know, even if it is meant to be, you know, in this case, the the carnival sort of freak show that, that mm-hmm. you know, is described here by just the very fact of putting Chesty Morgan in a film in which she's suffocating mobsters with her breasts, you know, like it's still this like compelling watch that, that you know, you, you keep sort of driving forward through the narrative and Doris Wishman's creative flourishes. And again, her, her interesting editing choices, you know, that, that, you know, whether it is for expediency or economy, like they create these just sort of like strange touches that, that in spite of so many people in this film feeling very empty and hollow, like oddly give them extra presence, like in the scene Early on when Larry is calling the, you know, the basically like to try to set up the blackmail scheme and he's like talking to the his boss or whoever on the phone, it keeps cutting away to him fiddling with an ashtray on the table. And like at several times, it just cut away to like Larry's hand, just a close-up of his hand, like just playing with this ashtray on the table. And it was like this really weird moment where again it's like okay, in the wider shots, you kind of look and it just seems like this really flat performance. But then she's also cutting to these close-ups of him doing a very human thing. Like when we sit there on the phone with people, you know, and you're having conversations, you know, I, I do it all the time. I'm just like playing with something on my fucking desk or, or fiddling with something. It's like this really oddly like humanizing moment for characters and actors who at sometimes like could seem so flat. She's mm-hmm. actually at times, I think, doing 
so much more work in the construction of her film than the the performers have like certainly they haven't helped her out very much you know at times yeah i mean i just kept looking at this thing too and thinking like this movie as disgusting and um, as much as it looks like it was like dragged through the dirt like this thing looks better than the 30 seconds i've watched of the many saints of newark (laughs) oh yeah i mean well yeah look the whole thing has a very charming like pop art quality to it as you know some of her work does and especially yeah we get on location footage of Las Vegas and Miami and like one thing I was thinking about watching both of these films that you can't really like discount also like the documentary revolution that's happening in the 60s and these kinds of films connection to it right using the same low budget kind of gear and even just the excessive amount of New York shots and bad girls go to hell I'm thinking like this film is one third fragmented cinema verite. Yeah. You could cut together like 20 minutes of just pure documentary footage out of a Doris Wishman film because there is just so many non diegetic inserts to whatever the fuck she wants to like build this overall, you know, sex mosaic or whatever, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, right? Yeah. In that sense, even for this, yes, a very like almost uh, anthropological value in a film like this, because as you described, like, God, 1974 in these grimy little spots is like, y- you got to see it to believe it. You look, like, at, you yeah, look like, at Las Vegas and you go, where is it? <laughs> you know, that's yeah. how fucking like tiny that is then the old strip, you yeah. know, like. You call that Vegas, you know, compared to now? Yeah. It's insane. But it's it's like beautiful stuff still. Like it has that anthropological or ontological value of like, man, yeah, this like people live like this. Yeah, people people <laughs> lived and looked like this. And they're, you know, they're our parents or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, it's fucked up. And so yeah, she goes to Vegas. She smuggles into the burlesque scene. And and one thing, again, I found, like, interesting that I would sort of assume wouldn't be in, you know, other uh, films of this type. But when she gets the job at the strip club or, like, the burlesque show, uh, her boss, like... Sexually harassing her. Yeah. To put it lightly. Yeah. Right. It's basically like, uh, you know, I'm just going to, like, fire you. He, like, fires her because she won't do what he wants yeah sexually exactly uh and it's just totally an aside that you're just like oh this is just like real shit that she's inserting into this film as there's this whole detective revenge murder thing going on it's like this is about workplace harassment now here for like five minutes uh again always like the harsh realities of this society like the the reality coming through right those are like the little feminist flourishes that i think you can see in there of just being like oh yeah you know you think it's glamorous to be a a stripper a burlesque performer like hell no like it's not i mean this is your boss like and and they're all like this guy right oh yeah that and again for her also being like a an educated successful uh, advertising executive that That's now right. is stooping to this on her like mission for revenge and now being uh, yes exploited 
by her boss. You know? Yeah, like, you're a long way from you know Kansas, where you're an advertising executive. Right, right. You know, like she graduated <laughs> from Stanford. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, and so she, of course, you know, ends up through her her burlesquerie, uh, you know, willing Captain Hook into her or her orbit uh, as she then you know sets her sights on him. You know, she lures him in the room. She laces a drink. A heavy guitar chord is struck, and then we get the deadly weapons for the first time. And this is an amazing moment because, again, it's not just that she smothers him with her boobs and kills him. But while this is going on, number one, she's, like, getting off on it and kind of, like, being aroused by it. But also, there's, like, Pierre LeFou party scene filters uh, being cut. Like, there's, like, jump cuts of her smothering him. And it's all in, like, a medium long shot. You know, you can, like, see her, like, all of it. But then it just keeps cutting with, like, red. And then back to normal. And you're just like, what the fuck is going on? You you read that as she was being aroused by the act of smothering th- those guys? Yeah, dude. It's weird. I thought she was like desperate for Doris to just like yell cut. It's weird because there's two angles she's primarily using in that moment of the the first um, smothering. Smothering. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And like in one of the in one of the angles, like she does look into it. There's another angle that they're also cutting to where she doesn't look into it. The Brisson. Right, it's weird yeah. because it's like in one take she does. I will say, Ryan, to me also, I looked. I was like, she looks really uncomfortable. But then it would cut to the other angle, and I'd be like, she got a little like half smirk on, yeah. you know. And I don't know, you know, whether or not that's intentional or whatever. But it was just like between these two takes, there's like there's like two chesties, <laughs> and they're like, sure. you know, everywhere yeah, you battle inside is, me. It like, literally you know, is like, two takes of the same shot, and yeah. one. Uh, yeah, she kind of smirks, and the other, she's just like blank or or negative. With as with the case of all this, like what's intentional, what isn't, you never can really tell at this sort of like budget level and yeah. chaos that's uh-huh. going on. But <laughs> to me, I was I saw it as a very liberatory kind of thing, uh, at least in the one shot. You yeah, know, not the other. In well, one. It, yeah. it is. Sure. I mean, right? Because that is also the moment where it's meant to like be for her like the most empowering thing. You know, as she like. Stops this wise guy's face between her <laughs> between her <laughs> huge fucking tits and just smothers the shit out of him, you know? <laughs> I'm just like I'm just like cracking up. I'm uncomfortable and I'm looking at her. And you know, this is also the point when I, I, I was like, you know, Ryan, to your to your point too, of me kind of being like, who the fuck is Chesty Morgan anyway? And like I had to like look her up because like in the burlesque number two, I was sort of like well, that wasn't, that didn't knock me off my socks and whether, yes, that's like just intentionally supposed to be she's uncomfortable on the stage or maybe Chesty Morgan wasn't actually really that great a dancer, but really the whole draw there was her big naturals. But it was at this moment, while she's got this 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 mafioso stuffed between her breasts, that I also was like, I got to look up Chesty Morgan a little bit and like, who the hell is she? And like, I discovered that like, she's an orphan of the Holocaust. Yeah. 
Did you did you know that? Right. She no. <laughs> she she was oh born in God. Warsaw and her parents died in the concentration camps. And then she was taken to Israel as like a child and like basically lived as an orphan in post-Holocaust Israel for a while. And she you know, just had this like really intense experience of like yeah. horrible trauma and like this maybe, very maybe that's why she was so bummed out in that second take what a fucking crazy world we live in. <laughs> my god <laughs> thank you doris for bringing all of this to us a charged work so then <laughs> so then crystal goes to miami after getting that information of course uh from captain hook and we see a lot of nice flowers, and we also see Harry Reams as Tony with his huge mustache. Oh, yeah. And his girlfriend slash mistress, Eve, who's along for their, uh, you know, vacation in Miami. Uh, and we get an extended sequence of Eve naked underwater, which I thought was uh, lovely. Just, again, an excessive, like, now here's a naked woman in water for, you know, <laughs> two minutes. And then you're just, like, hanging out at the pool, and that's when Crystal starts, you know, making her moves in on Tony and his huge mustache. Ultimately, of course, uh, she gets to him. But before that, there's an incredibly fucked up scene with Tony yeah. where he strangles his girlfriend to death. Yeah, with his tie, his silk tie. Yeah, uh, it was, again, a very like unexpected and uh, incredibly like violent moment, you know, Partly in this film, like all the violence, like felt that much more, I don't know, like that much more shocking because of like the color and the griminess of like the 70s locale and everybody's kind of hairy. Yeah. And like gross. It's like less, it's like less heightened too. Yeah. You know, there's something otherworldly about bad girls go to hell and there's something like too yes. earthly yeah, about yes. this film like too plain or too sin- like it felt like snuff film at times <laughs> like yeah and like man when he's like choking her that actress like man she really looked in distress at a certain point i mean like she was red as a beach she was fucking yeah and i was like are they really fucking choking this girl for a second i mean (laughs) i can't imagine doris would allow that to happen but like that props to that woman then or however they coordinated that because like i really did think like this woman is getting asphyxiated right now. I thought it was weird too when that, because that what like precipitates that fight is her sort of accusing him of like, you know, fraternizing with Chesty Morgan. And he's just like, I've never seen this woman before. Like, I've never, this woman at the burlesque, I, I don't know why yeah. she's, I've never seen her before. And it's just funny that he didn't make a, like, he yeah. didn't draw attention to the fact, like, you'd think I'd remember someone like this. With the largest pair of breasts I've ever seen in my life, you think that would like register in my head? Yeah. Uh, he like never uses that as an excuse. Yeah. He's just like calm. He's just like, no, I've never seen her. Yeah. So he overreacts and uh, just strangles his girlfriend to death. He gets what's coming to him though. Chesty gets the job done. Oh, he sure does. That's right. He gets a face full of boobs. Yeah, once again, she she is able to successfully dose him with like a um an like an elephant-sized pill that she 
you know, casually drops into his glass and he swallows without a second thought. I mean, did you see how big the pill was she dropped in there? Like, didn't even like dissolve it. Like, I saw it like in the glass while he was like taking a swig and just downs his whiskey, you know? And, you know, just when you think the movie's over, she's gotten her revenge. Doris has one last surprise for us, which is that when Crystal gets back home, she learns that her father is actually the mob boss with the scar on his hand. And that doesn't go well for anyone as we get her father with his craggly face confronting her, looking for the black book, and he just blasts her. Yeah, just fucking shoots his daughter. Like, no, no. Yeah. No joke. Just very shocking and plain moment in a, in a movie of many shocking moments. But uh, and then she fires back. Yeah, she shoots him right in the ass. Yeah, <laughs> like, he, which I don't think is what they meant. But like, he's like the shot is of him like totally bent over, like looking for this thing, and she like pulls a little like you know snub nosed revolver out and just like fires once, and he just like topples over. And I'm like, she shot him right yeah. in the fucking ass. Like. <laughs> That'll do it to you. Yeah. And he drops dead. And then, oh, my God. It's, like, just Doris. Like, Chesty is then, like, dragging her very heavy breasts across the the floor, bleeding profusely, and lays herself on top of her now Mm -hmm. dead father in this, like, incredibly, like, just, like, odd little note of, like you know, weird kind of, I don't know, what's it like? Grace. Yeah, but I was also going to say like, you know, almost it's like kind of crazy Oedipal kind of thing, but maybe not Oedipal. What is it when it's a woman? Is it Electra? Yeah. The Electra kind of combo. And I was like thinking of that, you know, like like Greek tragedy. Uh, we'll have to see how she's resurrected in um, Double Agent 73, because that's like purportedly a sequel, as I understand it. And I know she like laces her breasts with poison for some of the uh, suffocation sequences. That's how they elevate it in the in the sequel. The more you know. I I, I have to say, you know, like uh, I, you know, again, going back to sort of how we launched in this conversation, I'd never heard of Doris Wishman before this week. And I have to say, like her work is is incredibly perplexing in a mm-hmm. in a great way in a really in a really great way uh, I think that this, for all, even describing Deadly Weapons here as sort of like, I don't know, at times like, yeah, a laughable little kind of freak show, there are still these these moments of tenderness and emotional depth and you know, as you said, Marsh, almost like this sort of like verite naturalism that that sort of like claws its way through the obvious phoniness of everything, the contrived plot, you know, again, like bad girls go to heaven, that it's sort of all of a sudden after 60 minutes, we got to tie this shit up. How do we do it? Well, and the killer was here all along, you know, like he, the, she shows up at the fucking right. cop's mom's house or or it's my dad, you know, like. All that stuff, you know, like it's, it's, it's goofy, but you know, within it, like there are just these like rays of, of light that show to me like an, an incredible, and we've used this phrase before, you know, for me, like a truly like cinematic voice from, from director Doris Wishman. Like, I, I can't stress this enough. Like, yeah. 
I mean, again, it's a cinema that feels like overwhelmingly real, even in its artifice and its like incoherency at times. There's a coherency to that vision. And again, I think this is the type of stuff that just it really makes a case for why it is just so worthwhile restoring these types of films um, and discovering how much of like a, just a different world of cinema there is even in these like low budget, you know, exploitation films, how much texture and beauty can be found and just horrifying things can be found when you like clean up these prints and we finally get to see get a look at them. Yeah, it's nice to imagine a time when the bad movies were this Mm -hmm. good, you know? I mean, that's fucking insane to me. And look, I like bad movies, even ones, you know, from the 90s. Uh, But damn, this shit, this is a bad movie. Sign me up. Yeah. I mean, now we're just like sentenced to live in this, in this existence of like, you know, one cinema where everything's great, but it's fucking like horseshit. It's just awful. You know, like in her work, a human being like struggling to, to make films and make them any which way they can. And, and you see the loving hands in like every frame and in, in incredible loss too, that it's like, this is a, uh, like an endangered species that's now gone into extinction on a certain level. Like it, it's really, <laughs> there's something kind of sad to me about it as well, but like in a beautiful way. You know? Absolutely. Well, Ryan, uh, these were our picks uh, for the date with Doris. And I mean, obviously as you even admitted, like you hadn't really had much experience with, with Doris either, but uh you know, did you watch some other things that maybe you would uh, recommend? Or sure. The- well, I recommend taking a look at all of her films that are up on the Criterion channel right now. The The restorations are all quite good. But, you know, one film that her work reminds me of is a film that, since it is, you know, we're in October here and Halloween's coming up. One of uh, the best films I've ever watched while carving pumpkins is a film from 1965 called Orgy of the Dead. It is also very much a part of the nudie cutie tradition, and it actually happens to be written by Ed Wood. It's based on, um, he he wrote a book and then he adapted it for, for this film with his own screenplay. As one does. <laughs> and it stars Criswell as well. And so Criswell is sort of our host in a cemetery, and he is just like demanding entertainment for the evening, and it is just a parade of ghouls and goblins and enchantresses just nude and walking around and it's very foggy and that's really it and that's why I recommend carving pumpkins while you watch it because it is as brief as the film is it is a bit of a chore if you are just simply looking at it I I recommend an activity to pair with Orgy of the Dead it's like an x-rated monster mash it is it's an x-rated monster mash that's that's exactly what it is um (laughs) yeah it's a it's it's a beautiful film and it certainly has its um its issues as well but um yeah I would check out Orgy of the Dead from 1965 if you're a fan of the work of Doris Wishman nice Uh, so yeah, so that I had a really good time. I'm glad that we were able to use this opportunity to give me an excuse to power through a bunch of her films. They were it was a, it was a pretty revealing experience. I you know felt like I I learned a lot about her and um, yeah. So that that's what I had this week, Marsh. What do you got for us next week? Well, you know me, I like the sort of seasonal topics, and so I also was thinking 
Well, it's October. But while everyone zigs, the gauntlet is always is going to zag. And, you know, every time I come over to Andy's to do the show, I ride my bike. I've been riding my bicycle a lot uh, in these recent uh, weeks and months. So I thought it's October. It's a perfect time for our topic to be Spoketober. <laughs> Movies about or heavily featuring the use of bicycles. Wow. All right. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. What's troubling you, Chris? Is it your young man? No. Why haven't I met him? What's all the mystery about? Mystery? I don't know what you're talking about. Where does he come from? What does he do for a living? I love him. I have some layouts I want to finish today. I must go. Goodbye, Father. Mm-hmm.